This podcast is part of the Podbelly Network. Please visit podbelly.com to see a complete listing of all of our other shows. It's about to be a fun ride. Follow along, watch as we slide. Paranormal just hit the lights. Goosebumps all through the night. Mix in just a little bit of twain. That girl sure can't do a thing. Together, hillbillies go insane. Laugh so hard it'll hurt your brain. Podcast you won't ever change. These two here, they got the recipe. Sat on back and listen in to some of our darkest mysteries. Eh? Welcome to Hillbilly Horror Stories. And now here's your host. Jerry and Tracy Polly and their dog Ninja. As welcome to Hillbilly Horror Stories Midweek Ten episode. Hello, everybody. It's hard to believe we're doing. We got to, made it to ten of those. I know. This one's going to be cool. Obviously, we've got the Fear of the Week with Leslie Fear, mm-hmm. and this one's going to be on torture devices, medieval torture devices. You mean like what we have in our closet? That is not torture. Unless you, uh, <laughs> unless you consider the fact that all I get to do is look at it. Um, <laughs> then <laughs> we've got Diane Student from History Goes Bump. She's so coming on to tell us about the McKenzie poltergeist. Nice. Awesome. And to start it all off, we have, which is kind of a cool story because obviously Sunday... We did a story about the Inuit tribe that went missing, Mm -hmm. and as I was researching that story, I started coming up with all kinds of other missing person stories, and a lot of it was like the missing 411 type stories we've done. Uh, Roanoke came up, obviously the Inuit tribe, but there were two stories that were really similar to each other, but completely different than all these other ones. Uh, Like I said, the missing 411 stuff, that's like people just, you know, this is one person you know, ends up missing. We're like, the tribe deal was literally 30 people. Yeah, how does a whole point. tribe disappear like that? Right. And Roanoke, same thing. Of course, Roanoke, people think there could be, you know, other answers to it. They might have just went with some other tribes and just mm-hmm. stayed with them. And um, this one, though, these two that I'm getting ready, was going to talk about are different than that completely. And you're going to see what I mean. One of which... um I'm not 100% sure is accurate, so I left that off of here, and we'll get to that one later after I do a little more research on it to kind of figure out. Um, This gentleman went missing in England. I won't get too much into it. It was two people with him. All three of them were supposedly racing, and this guy just disappeared. And But I've read some stuff somewhere that said that them two guys, the other two that were with him, may have killed him and this was their this was just their story to cover it up that hey he just disappeared so I, until i can find out a little more i don't really want to cover that because if, if it's if that's what's actually what happened then it really doesn't fit yes into what we're doing this one though intrigues me intrigues the hell out of me one intrigue me fine so this is the story of orion williamson he's from selma alabama of course selma's where they had the big uh, Martin Luther King mm-hmm. uh, March and all that stuff. This was a little bit before that, though. Like a beautiful summer July day of 1854. Yeah, that's a ways back. <laughs> About 100 years. <laughs> 100 and change. <laughs> Orion Williamson was a farmer, and he lived on a at a very little modest farmhouse with his wife and his son. One day, 
he and his family are sitting out on the porch like you would do back then because obviously there was no air conditioning. So they're sitting out on the porch. His neighbor, by the name of Armour and James Wren, they come riding by in their little horse and buggy. And they're riding past the property. Uh, Orion decides he's going to stand up and walk over and take his horses that he that's, that's out in the field and put them in the shade so mm-hmm. they'll be a little more cool. So he takes a few steps. He stops and he picks up like a small stick for whatever reason. And he's kind of semi-playing with the stick. And he walks, as he walks through ankle-deep grass, the wrens look over and they wave at Orion and he waves back. And then he just disappears. Like, the wrens are, are watching, his family are watching on the porch. They see him walking, they see him wave, and then vanishes. Like he just, I mean, four people watch this happen at fairly close range. Wow. I mean, I can't imagine what the reaction was. Well, they both ran over to him, right where the spot was. They both ran over to the spot. There was no sign of him anywhere, but there was no hole in the ground. Was there a stick? I don't know if they found a stick or not. (laughs) But there was no hole. And the grass that was would have been right there was missing too. What? So it's like there was a patch there of no grass. And he was missing, but no hole. So they literally searched for hours before they finally went to try to get some help. And when they went to get help, they formed a search party of about 300 men. They come back, they looked over every single inch of the field, even bought bloodhounds and stuff, but they couldn't find any sign of all of what had happened. The search lasted deep into the night before they finally said, we, we can't do anything else. Once the news started to kind of spread, several people came to Selma. Some just wanted to kind of help out and, and be extra volunteers. But there were also some geologists that came in that wanted to inspect the land mm-hmm. and kind of look for like caves or holes, sinkholes, that type of thing. These geologists found no sinkholes, no caves, only solid rock a few feet below the surface. That's incredible. After a long period of time without Orion turning up, a judge declared him dead. To add to the strangeness, Miss Williamson and her son said that they could hear Orion's voice calling for help for weeks after his disappearance, like an echoey coming from a distance. Oh my gosh, how heartbreaking is that? To know that he's doing and you can't get to him or don't even know where to go. So they said it became more faint by the day until it finally just stopped altogether. Every time they would hear it, they would run outside and check the field, but nothing. Nothing. Close his heart. The following spring, a circle of dead grass appeared in the exact spot where Orion had disappeared from. So there's two theories that were presented back then. There was a German scientist by the name of uh, Maximilian Hearn. He wrote a book called Disappearance and the Theory Thereof. He seems to think that Orion walked into a spot of universal ether. And you'll hear people talk about, oh, it's just, you know, they just put it out in the ether. Well, this goes back to... Uh, I can honestly say I've never heard that. I can honestly say I'm not shocked. <laughs> well, I've never heard that phrase ever. You've never heard of the ether. No. What, you know, e- what is ether? Well, I'm going to tell you. But, like, I was talking to Lee Solway earlier today, and just out of the blue, he mentioned something about the ether. Oh, so, anyways, um, 
these spots would only last a few seconds, like a black hole type thing, mm-hmm. but could destroy any any type of matter that had gotten within it, like disintegrate it. So that was the theory. So did he just happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time, or well, did they target him? That's once again a theory of, of him just walking through a mm-hmm. little spot that, for whatever reason. This theory, we're talking about the ether, was first um, theorized by Aristotle. Mm-hmm. So this shows how far back that goes. In Greek times, it was actually believed that the energy traveled through a mysterious substance, and that substance was called the ether. That is very interesting. And they believed that this was how light and sound uh, and even gra- gravity work. So um, think about this. A radio wave can travel through the radio station mm-hmm. and then tune in on your car. Well, and it? our podcast. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, but where is it Where is it coming from? Where right. do those waves go? You don't see it. Yeah. But they're they're out there. Same same thing with light. I mean, you mm-hmm. turn on the light, and it's here. So, but their their philosophy was there's like a substance called ether out that we just don't see, but that's where all this stuff travels through, and like atmosphere, I guess. Well, I mean, if they so, are you saying like you see on TV when the laser hits a person and then they just go to ashes? Is yes, that what you're or saying? like Star Trek, like where they would beam up and dematerialize. And... I want to be beamed up. Beam me up, Scotty. <laughs> well, that's weird because if they if that was the case, I wonder why, or I don't know that because you didn't mention it. Why there wasn't like ashes somewhere? Or well, they didn't see anything like they that. said they saw nothing. Nothing, and you know, back on the ether situation, the uh, the Maximilian Hearn philosophy. They think that that might be why they were able to still hear. Oh, the voices. Think back. Probably the best example would be the movie Poltergeist. Mm-hmm. Remember when Carol Ann went missing and yes. they couldn't find her anywhere, but, but they could the he- they could hear her. Mm-hmm. They could hear her. Talking. Yeah, they could still yes. hear. Her. Similar situation to that. To that. Mm-hmm. That's what they felt like. Wow, that's amazing. So the <laughs> thanks, Ninja. <laughs> So the the other theory, I said there was two, was that Orion walked through a magnetic field and he got sucked into another dimension. And okay, now, that'd be kind of cool. Maybe, until you can't get back. Well, that's true. Which obviously is what happened. So is it possible that Orion slipped from one dimension into another in the blink of an eye? Wow. I mean, can you just see that happening? That is the craziest thing. And obviously... And it'd be like, hey, did you all see that? <laughs> and obviously he never turned back up. Oh, wow. Well, that's really sad. Because that's sad, but it's really cool, too. Now, the story I was talking about in, in England, it was a similar situation. It was three guys. One's always bragging about how how much he could run and how good of runner he was so they all three went out and decided they were going to run and they had a stagecoach uh or a buggy that was in front of them kind of mm-hmm. leading away and they were running and the other two guys said he tripped and he tripped and kind of fell forward and as he fell forward he just disappeared and they both saw it and he never showed back up again but like i said i uh, i read the story but i know i've heard somewhere that those two guys eventually one of them confessed that they killed him or something, and that was just a. That's just a I don't know. But but if he the, was if a I'm, sore winner. But if I'm wrong, 
Yeah. If I'm wrong, that's another situation in a whole different country. So, and it's where the exact same thing happened. You said horse and buggy, right? Yeah. Well, he wasn't in the horse and buggy. Oh, the okay. horse and buggy was just like in up front in of front them, of But them. that's what I'm saying. So, you would think like if something weird like that was to be happening, the, the horses. Yeah, exactly. So, I don't know. But anyways, that was a, that's a good story. Quick little story. I thought it was kind of cool. I like that a lot. But so you can see that's different because it literally was somebody that people were looking at just de- dematerialized right in front of their eyes. Oh, gosh. <laughs> what if that happened to me and then all I was left was my pink hair? Oh. Oh. <laughs> I'd be like, she's gone. I know that hair anywhere. <laughs> all right. Well, let's get into the fear of the week. Okay, let's do it. Listening to the fear of the week. With author Leslie Fear. Hey guys, welcome to this installment of the Fear of the Week with author Leslie Fear. Pick up all of her books on Amazon.com. Leslie, you have a doozy for us this week. I do. I do. And I'm I'm just gonna let you Take it away. I'm not even going to interfere with an introduction. Interfere with my fear of the week? <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to interfere with your fear of the week. <laughs> well, Jerry, this one's not for the squeamish. Um, we're going to talk about medieval torture chambers. Yeah, this is nice. not. Yeah, this is going to be. If y'all don't like squeamish stuff, just turn it off. It's it's it's. Don't turn us off. Actually, don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> What are you doing? What are you doing to us? Okay. So typically, you know, torture chambers are in castles. They're in the basement of castles. They're, they were typically in Europe or, you know, wherever there were sovereigns, emperors, kings, queens, all those things. So now that we've got that out of the way. And typically when you were thrown to the dungeons and going to be tortured it was for high treason against the king meaning you were attempting maybe to kill the king or queen overthrow their government whatever the case was okay so and that was just for men women had a whole different torture and i'll get there so everybody's heard of the rack i'm sure you have right jerry absolutely okay and that's the most commonly known torture device in the middle ages and that was that wooden platform with the rollers on both ends and the victim's hands and feet are tied at, at you know, at, at each end and straight up. And the rollers will be turned in the opposite directions, stretching the victim's body to like uncomfortable lengths, dislocating bones from sockets slowly and ripping open the skin and then just finally bleeding out from just being so it's it's so stretched and it was funny because they were talking about the the, they were smart enough in this dungeon that the actual way that they made the floors even back then was on an angle so the blood would run out and not be underneath the uh, torturer's feet Mm -hmm. there were some good architects back then well they were you know hey you got to give them that (laughs) kudos to your architecture and your torture chamber things yuck (laughs) anyway okay so but this is one that really got me this is this person really must have pissed off the king or a queen this is called the saw 
Now they would hang the victim upside down, tying each foot up, not together, but open, up, to where you're hanging upside down, one foot is, there. you're spread apart, and so that the blood goes to your head, and you're just hanging there, and there's one guy on one side of the saw, and one guy on the other side of the saw, like you're, like they're doing, like, logging, and they actually start in the groin and work their way down the body in half. Yeah. So, <laughs> I don't even know if I need to explain any more than that. I mean, it's, I don't think you do. I, it's just, you know, and they would do it slowly and meticulously because, you know, and plus it takes a, a lot to get through bone anyway. But that had, oh, so, they, like I said, they would slowly start going between the legs, through the hip joints, and through the pelvis, and finally the ribs, and hopefully by then you're not conscious or alive anymore, because you probably are bleeding out, and are kind of away from yourself, because you're split in half, so you're probably not even... That's just, yeah. I don't even know if I can keep talking about that. That's just disgusting. All right. So (laughs) women, they would go to the torture chamber. Not as often, but they would go too. And if they were accused of adultery or abortion or some other crime, like stealing, you know, whatever. They, and this is, this, this description pretty much, almost describes exactly what would happen to him. It's called the breast ripper. And it's a claw-like device with, and it ended in spikes and they kind of curved around. And it was heated over hot coals. And then they would tie the woman against the wall with her arms straight out on her sides. And they would put these spikes over her breast one by one and they would shred her breast with these spikes and hot coals slowly. Yeah. That's just, yeah. If you're a woman, that that's like your worst nightmare. It's hard enough to breastfeed, let alone this. But I think sometimes it feels like that. <laughs> you're ripping me to shreds. But, you know, you have to really be bad to be subjected to that kind of torture i mean that's that's just craziness i think they just they they had a whole different mentality Mm -hmm. of 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 punishment back in these days that just you know now you can have somebody in prison for a heinous crime and it's like oh they only got two meals uh, last week per day, and you know there needs to be something done about that. When you look at what they were doing back here, yeah, but the, <laughs> in yeah, medieval times, it, it's just well. The thing is, there was no. It was it was a black and white situation. There's no in between. You either did it or you didn't. And if, even if you didn't, you and you were accused of it, and they believed you did it, didn't matter. You got the worst kind of punishment you could ever get. Now, if you're a noble, you might get. Your head chopped off instead. That's quick. That's easy. That was that. That to them seemed the right thing to do for people that were noble. 
But for people that were, you know, thieves or peasants or even not of blue blood, but maybe still had a fairly high, you know, they would, they're sub- subjected to all this and including limb slash, uh, smashing, limb smashing. And hmm. this was for, that sounds fun. this was for public execution. Yeah. So they used an execution wheel. They would tie the person to the scaffold, like uh, flat, and they would run him over with a wagon wheel, something similar to like a wagon wheel, but they would reinforce it with extra iron so it was really heavy, and they would put spikes on the ends of it. <laughs> and they would just purposely go over the legs first because they didn't want they didn't want you dead yet. They wanted you to be they want it was for entertainment. People were loving this. They would want people would used to watch people hang. I don't even understand that. But this was we didn't have we didn't have the Xbox back then, so this was this was <laughs> we didn't, we didn't have Fortnite or whatever. This was it, and children would watch this spikes going over legs and arms, just enough to to just break the legs and break the skin and make them bleed, but not kill them. And it would I think be, technically that was that was Fortnite. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Or what's the other one? Uh, what's the what's the army or the the military one? Um, Call, Call of Duty. Duty. Yeah, yeah. That's it. But then, but then finally, when when they'd had enough of their fun, and this would this would go on for minutes, and minutes doesn't seem like a long time. But that's a long time to be torturing someone with the with the weighted down huge wagon wheel, you know, um, over legs, arms. Then finally, once they'd had enough, they'd go over the ribs and then the heart, and then they would go over the head and smash the head completely wide open like a watermelon. I bet he was extra tender, though, when it was all said and done, you know, with that wagon wheel with the spikes I'm telling and stuff you, like that is the way to meat tenderize. You are onto something there. Cheery, <laughs> <laughs> you're so gross. <laughs> But this this last one is probably it's as bad as everything else was, and I would hate to go that way. I'm I'm, I'm honestly wondering if this might be the worst for me. And you would think drowning wouldn't be that bad, drowning the victim. But let me tell you what they did to drown you. The victim has to drink all the water that they give them, or other liquids such as bile or urine. Nice. And they have they poured in its mouth, the, the victim's mouth, by a funnel until the stomach pretty much is almost bursting. And then they try, and then if it hasn't burst or whatever the you know it hasn't come back up, they'll beat the victim until it vomits all of the contents, and then makes him drink it again until he finally just dies. And this co- this can go on for hours. Yeah. It sounds like what a lot of college kids do, like every weekend it's up with beer. <laughs> that is the truth. That is the truth. Because, you're, yeah, you're pretty much just drinking your own vomit, and there's all kinds of, who knows what's in those things. You know, people get mad. Hey, come over here. Let's, let's you know, let's do shots, or let's do the funnel. You never know what they got in there. <laughs> who knows? That's gross. But, yeah. So, well, you know. Go ahead. 
one of the ones that you haven't touched on yet, which I know there was thousands, oh, so it's yeah. kind of hard to touch on all of them. But my, I feel bad saying my favorite because it's not like it's a you know drinking game. But every the 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 one where they would lay somebody down on their back and then put the rats in the cage on their stomach. Mm, mm-hmm, are you are you familiar mm-hmm. with that one? Well, and and yeah. and, and, the, and the rats would just eventually just eat their way through your stomach because they got hungry, and that was what was there for them to eat was your stomach. Exactly. Well, what they would do is they would cut it open and then let them have full access to your bowels because that doesn't kill you right away. So they would actually, you know, I guess how they would cut they would cut it to where yeah you'd bleed but you wouldn't be bleeding like profusely yet but enough to get the rat's attention and they would make sure the rats were hungry so you're not worried about getting bubonic plague by then with all the rats biting you (laughs) you know you're (laughs) you're that's your concern that's not your concern anymore your concern is um being eaten literally eaten alive because that's exactly what, and that and it wouldn't kill you right away and that's why they call it the torture chamber i mean obviously because it's just just sheer torture because so all of these things that i told you about every single one they would keep you alive long enough just like quartering and drawing and quartering and then dragging someone you know even in 19th century before they'd hang you they would draw and quarter you like they would slice you open meaning, you know, slice open and quarter you, and then they would drag you, you know, with horses, and and you're not dead yet, then they'd hang you. Yeah. It's it's bad. Some jolly old souls. And you know what? Treason was formally abolished in the U.S. in 1998. (laughs) (laughs) Just so you know, it's... Totally against the law now for us to be, uh, you know, for us to have any, you know, torture chamber issues or be this kind of death uh, by treason. You know, we, we you can't do that anymore, which is nice to know. It is nice to it's know. It's very nice to know. I mean, I'm sure people, the toy box color for one, uh, was not real happy about that. But I think he'd already been found I out was- by then. I just listened to a story on the on the toy box killer yesterday. Really? Oh gosh, that was torture. That's a that's a. Maybe you can tell us about that on a different day. I would love to. Well, you know, because I'm weird and love these stories. But yeah, I I would. <laughs> that that was some torture for some women. Let me tell you. That, yes, it was. It was. Yeah. But that's all I got. Leslie? That's all I got. Thank you, my princess. This was fantastic. You are very welcome. And uh, I'll see myself out. Bye. So what do you think? You um, up for trying some of those torture devices? Hey. <laughs> no. <laughs> I think I'll pass. I always wanted to do the little rat thing where you just put the rats on your chest in the cage and just have it eat its way through. Are you dumb? I would have. I would die. You would die before it even started eating. Yes. It would then be over. And you'd die about die when I sent you that picture of the mouse. Oh, my gosh. Yesterday. Ugh. So, okay. Without further ado, Diane Student, History Goes Bump, which we will be 
partnering partnering up with in uh, Louisville in mm-hmm. April and in Savannah in October. Exciting. Very cool. So um, she's going to tell us about the Mackenzie Poltergeist, mm-hmm. which is a really cool story. Yes. And uh, she gets into all kinds of detail on this thing. And it's funny when I, I was telling her, I said, hey, I got a subject I think you'll like. I know you're like, I'm in the cemeteries and I know you're into this. This is perfect. It's a cemetery poltergeist. <laughs> you can't get any better than that. Oh, yeah. And she's like, she told me, she said, I started researching it. And I started thinking, I started reading this guy's name that wrote a book. And I was like, man, that sounds familiar. And she said, I had the book. Oh. <laughs> she actually had the book on this already. So. That was fun. So she was able to pull some personal stories that have happened to people oh, from her man. book. Oh, so. man. Good. So let's give Diane a listen. Hey, guys. We have an old friend back on the show tonight, Diane Student from History Goes Bump. Diane, thanks for coming on with us. Oh, I'm so glad to be here, Jerry. I'm glad to have you on, too. As I always say whenever you're on the show, you are one of my mentors and probably the person that I've learned the most from in this industry, and I will always be eternally grateful to you. Well, thank you, Jerry. I appreciate that. And as you know, your podcast has been one of my favorites almost from the time you started. I mean, I was back in the, what do they call it now, the dark ages? (laughs) Yeah. It's funny because I had to go back through some a bunch of the old episodes recently and, uh, and and look at some things. And I guess you forget because after three and a half years, it's just what you do now is what you think about. But I look back at the sound quality when I first started this with Ricky. Uh, I listened to the sound quality when Tracy and I first started. The next step up in sound quality, then the next step up again in sound quality. It just it it kind of is kind of cool to look back and see how the show has grown, uh, just strictly from a sound standpoint. And then you know we couldn't get a single guest back in when we first started, <laughs> and now it's like I, I'm so lucky to have such great guests on week after week after week that it's it's just uh, very thankful that things have progressed the way they have. It's a good way to look at it because I know there's sometimes when I think about listening to my earlier episodes, it's kind of scary. I'm not sure I want to hear that again. <laughs> but when you see how far you've come, it really does. I don't know. It kind of bolsters you a little bit. It does, and then it gets. It's a little frustrating sometimes because somebody will leave a review, and the review would be based on episode 15, yes. and we just got finished with like you know 179. So it's like. Come on, man. Listen to a few more episodes before you leave the review. (laughs) I know. I wish I could tell everybody, listen to the most recent episode and then go back because then you'll know where we come to. Well, you know, we we put um, a little precursor at the first episode. If you go and listen to the first episode, it tells you all that from the beginning. Hey, that we recruited the comedy and stuff on it. It changes. Uh, the sound quality gets better around, I think it's around episode 35. So, you know, come listen to the new episodes if you don't like this. So we put all that because we know most people are going to go back and listen to the first episode, you know, when they start. And uh, I guess it makes some difference. Sometimes it don't. Great minds think alike because I did the same thing. I put a little thing at the very front of the number one episode and said, the sound quality gets better, the hosting <laughs> changes, there's all kinds of things happening. So please listen to the most recent episode and then come back and enjoy all the rest. So Diane, you have had a very successful podcast, History Goes Bump, for what are we we're looking at, over five years now? That is correct. 
and it's it's super entertaining. We run out of stuff to talk about. It seems like, you know, everybody always asks that. Are you going to run out of stuff to talk about? You're never going to run out of stuff to talk about. But it does become more of a challenge to find uh, the bigger, juicier stories out there. You've got how many episodes up? Approximately. I know you probably don't know the exact number right off. Officially, there's 320 of them. But, of course, there's some bonus casts and things in there as well. Yeah, that's a lot of stories. It is. And thank God for listeners who make suggestions, because that has really helped to come up with some of the locations that I've covered. We talked uh, a little bit earlier uh, last week when we decided that we were going to have you on the show. And you are going to tell us a really cool story tonight on the Mackenzie Poltergeist And uh, you seem to be uh, semi-excited about this one. I absolutely am. Jerry, you know I love cemeteries, and when they happen to be haunted, it's all so much better, even. (laughs) And usually... (laughs) Are there any cemeteries that aren't haunted? (laughs) Actually, you'd be surprised how many aren't. I was surprised by how many are, because I figured, why do you want to hang around a bunch of dead bodies in the afterlife? It wouldn't really be my choice. But apparently there are some spirits that do like to do that. But, you know, I have a theory behind that. I don't think most of the time it's the dead people in the cemetery that are coming back. I think it's more the people who maybe lost a loved one and found solace going there to visit their loved one. And then when the time came, they just really liked that place. You know, like Dina Marie, for example. She absolutely loves Laurel Hill Cemetery. Mm -hmm. I could see her spending some of her afterlife in that cemetery just because of the time she's enjoyed there while she was alive. That's true. And, you know, like I said, I love cemeteries, so don't be surprised if my spirit isn't bumping around some cemetery somewhere in the afterlife, too. (laughs) Well, I'm going to take this opportunity to turn the microphone over to you and just let you do your thing. Okay, that sounds fabulous. And Jerry, you know I'm an open-minded skeptic. So when it comes to poltergeists, I'm really, really skeptical. Some of these stories sound so far out and stuff. But this one is pretty darn believable because it has so many people that have talked about it, experienced it. It's been documented all over the place. And for that reason, I think there might be some truth to this. First of all, this cemetery that we're going to talk about is Greyfriars Kirkyard. And this is over in Edinburgh, Scotland. And for those of you who don't know, this is considered one of the most haunted cities in all of Europe and maybe even the world. And Greyfriars Kirkyard is one of the most haunted locations that's there. Richard Felix, for those of you who are over in Europe, probably are familiar with him as he was on TV's Most Haunted. And he said that the Mackenzie Poltergeist is one of the most convincing supernatural cases of all time. So this is a guy who has a lot of experience with this. So if he's saying that, there must be something to it. There's also a guy over there named Jan Andrew Henderson. He is an author and also runs the City of the Dead tour. And he's an expert on this case. And as I told you, Jerry, when I read the name of the book that he had written about this, it was called The Ghost That Haunted Itself. And I went, that sounds really familiar. 
I wonder if I have that book. <laughs> sure enough, I did right there on my shelf. So I was really excited. And I'm going to share some of the stories that people have shared with him when they've been on his tour. And they are amazing. Well, the reason why he is so familiar with this and why he's been given the kind of access that he has to the Kirkyard is because he lived in a house for many years that overlooked the cemetery. Unfortunately, fire swept through it in 2003, so he doesn't live there anymore. But that's why he has a lot of familiarity with this case. But before we get into talking about the poltergeist and everything, anybody who knows me knows that I care about the history and so I want to kind of lay some groundwork here so you get a feel for the cemetery itself and then who this guy Mackenzie is that has become this poltergeist. This area feels really menacing. On one side of the cemetery, you've got this old melancholy hospital. And on the other side, you've got this really menacing looking prison. So it's kind of a crazy place to have a cemetery. When you walk into the cemetery, it is beautiful. I know some people think it's crazy when you talk about a cemetery being beautiful, but it's got these tombstones and statuary that are ornate, wonderfully carved. Everything there is very, very old, of course. And so when you are looking at some of these tombstones, they're just covered with moss and all kinds of stuff. So it's just creepy beautiful is the way I like to say it. This is called a kirkyard, which basically kirk means church. And so a kirkyard is a churchyard, and a churchyard is a cemetery that's on church property. It's pretty self-explanatory. The church that sits here is named for the Franciscan friary that originally was located here, and it was managed by the Greyfriars. That's why it's called the Greyfriars Kirkyard. This was an order of Franciscan monks. The Franciscan order originally landed in Canterbury from Italy in the 13th century, and it spread across what we call the United Kingdom today. The order was later split into two different groups known as the Conventionals, and these were friars that were in the cities, and then there were the observants who wanted to keep the old, more isolated ways. So you kind of have the city guys and then the country guys, I guess is a good way to put it. The Franciscans in Great Britain became known as Grey Friars. Burials have taken place in the Kirkyard since the 16th century, so these burials go way back. But before it was a cemetery, it was a prison. So you're already looking at, first of all, a cemetery is already going to have hauntings going on because there's a bunch of dead bodies there. But if you think about the fact that there was a prison here before that, now you've got all kinds of negative energy that would be connected to that as well. To give you a little historical perspective on that, Roman Catholicism was pushing out of Scotland in the 16th century. And a group of people signed these covenants in Scotland that bound them to maintain the Presbyterian doctrines and they would denounce the Pope and the Catholic Church. So we have... Protestantism is separating out from Catholicism, and the Presbyterians were a part of the Protestants, so they kind of formed their own religious order, and they had signed all of these doctrines saying that they weren't going to be a part of this, and because they signed these things called covenants, they were called covenanters, and they proved to be a big issue for King Charles I. 
the National Covenant was signed at Greyfriars Kirk, the church there, in 1638. And it was this oath to maintain the Reformed religion and reject all the superstition of the Catholic Church. So basically the visions of Mary that were going on or people who were seeing saints and things like that, they were saying, this isn't happening. We reject all of that. We don't believe in that. When King Charles tried to push new reforms on these covenanters, they said, uh, we're not going to take it, and they revolted. And they managed to defeat the king in what was called the Bishop's War. Wars continued, and the covenanters became the de facto government of Scotland. Later, Oliver Cromwell, who some of your listeners are probably very familiar with, he was fighting for the English Parliament, and he would defeat the covenanters. And by 1652, they were basically decimated. In 1679, another rebellion was formed, but it was knocked down once again. They just did not have the numbers or the power. And 1,200 covenanters were taken prisoner at this time, and they needed somewhere to put them. So they built this prison at Greyfriars Kirkyard, and it was called the Covenanters Prison. So this is the prison that I was referring to. This was not a place anybody wanted to go to. I don't think any prison at any time is. Jerry, you've talked about a lot of haunted prisons on your podcast. None of them were places that people would want to go to. Think about the worst prison ever, and that's probably what this Covenanter's prison was like. This has left a lot of what I would say is bad juju behind, and the (laughs) the conditions here were awful. And many of the prisoners either ended up dying from some of the brutality or they were just plain executed. So I told you there were 1,200 of them that were imprisoned here. By the time the imprisonment came to an end, there were only 400 of these covenanters who were still alive. So you're talking 800 of them died either because of the conditions or being put to death, that kind of thing. The ones who managed to survive, well, their reward was wonderful. They got sold into slavery. So most of them died when the ship that was transporting them to wherever they were going to be put up as slaves wrecked. So almost all of these guys ended up dying. So you can only imagine what kind of energy you have going on with this. This brings us to the Mackenzie Poltergeist. And it's named for Sir George Mackenzie, who was a Scottish lawyer. Right there. I mean, doesn't that just say bad? (laughs) (laughs) He was the Lord Advocate implementing the reforms of this King Charles II. So he had come down from King Charles I in Scotland. And he has this Sir George Mackenzie pushing forward all of the things that he wanted. He was the one who not only imprisoned the Covenanters, but he's also the one who had most of them executed. And because of this, I mean, like I said, almost all of them had died, he earned the title of Bloody Mackenzie. This was a term for him because he had originally, they didn't quite understand this guy. He originally had defended the Covenanters. He thought the Presbyterians were right in saying that they didn't want to be a part of the Catholic Church. So this is a guy that they thought was their ally, and then all of a sudden he turns on them and is putting them to death. So I don't really know what was going on in his brain, if it was a power trip for him or something like that. 
And prior to this, he had been involved in witch trials. And when I first read that, I'm thinking, okay, he's a bad dude, so he's putting people to death during these witch trials. Actually, he wasn't. He thought it was ignorant to persecute these so-called witches. So he, uh, I don't know why all of a sudden he thought that it was okay to put these other people to death, but not people who had been accused of some kind of witchcraft or whatever. When he was being Bloody Mackenzie, it was called the Killing Times. And he had this drive to just completely wipe out Presbyterianism. So he dies in 1691 and is buried, ironically, in Greyfriars Kirkyard in a large mausoleum. So the place where he imprisoned all these people is where he ends up being buried. So it was kind of ironic that way. The reports yeah. of his ghost haunting Greyfriars Kirkyard, you're, you're probably thinking, oh, so if he dies in 1691, reports of his ghost probably start in the 1700s or something, right? Nope. This is a very recent haunting. These reports just started in the 20th century. And what started it all is this is a, it's a big, beautiful mausoleum. There's this homeless guy. He's hanging out in the cemetery. One day it is storming like crazy. He's looking for cover somewhere. He sees the mausoleum. He thinks, I'm going to go in there and I'm going to take cover. So he's in there during this rainstorm. And he noticed that he could get through an opening that was in the back of the structure. So after he gets through that, he begins to rummage through the coffins like a grave robber. Hey, is there anything in here that I can take, use? I, you know, maybe some people had some rings or necklaces or something, and maybe that's what he was looking for. I'm not sure. But while he's doing this rummaging, he doesn't notice that the floor underneath him is not real stable. It's starting to crack. Next thing you know, he falls through the flooring because it's already started to rot away, and he ends up in this pit full of bones. The reason why there's this pit of bones there, they believe, is that this probably was somewhere like a mass grave that these plague victims had been buried in. You know, Jerry, when plagues would rip through a place, their main goal was just to get the bodies buried as quickly as possible because they wanted to get the disease out of the city, so... The only way to really do that is just bury everybody in these mass burials. You wouldn't mark it or anything like that. People may not have known that this mass burial was even there, and that's why all of a sudden they put this mausoleum on top of this mass grave. I can't imagine what it must have been like for this guy. But after he's fallen into this pit, I don't know if it's because it was all these bones or if something else scared the crud out of him. But he goes flying out of this mausoleum, screaming and yelling, and you know he's, he doesn't want to go back there. The police go back and check everything out. They see, yes, indeed, the floor is broken through. There's all these bones here. They bring in some archaeologists who figure that must be what's going on here, is that we just have a bunch of plague victims, no harm, no foul, and they just kind of cover everything back over. Well, unfortunately... The poltergeist starts right after this because Mackenzie seems to have been disturbed. Even though the bones that this guy fell into are a bunch of other people, because he was in this mausoleum, I don't know if because the floor broke out or what have you, this is really pissed off this Mackenzie guy. So now all of a sudden you have bloody Mackenzie in spirit form 
and he doesn't like anybody being anywhere near his mausoleum. The stories that come out of this is not just some spirit touching people and, you know, a cold breeze. You hear those reports, but this ghost injures people to the point of cuts, bruises, and even broken bones. That's how hard he is, like, throwing people down on the ground. They're breaking their arms and things like that. Most of these attacks happen in the Covenanter's prison area, and so people believe this is how Mackenzie has returned back to his roots, is where this former prison has been. This mausoleum has started to be called the Black Mausoleum, too, for this. So you've got all of this ominous stuff going on. And if the hundreds of personal reports that are out there do not convince people that this place is haunted, perhaps the true story of how this exorcist named Colin Grant died shortly after cleansing the entire Kirkyard, and particularly this black mausoleum, might convince them. This Colin Grant guy owned a place called the Clairvoyant Shop, and it was down on St. Mary Street. And he was also a minister at a spiritualist church. In 1999, Grant decided that it was time to go in and exercise the cemetery after people who were taking these ghost tours at the cemetery kept complaining of being hit, punched, scratched, thrown down on the ground. So he's like, something really malevolent is here. I'm going to go in and take care of it. I don't know why he thought he was going to be able to do it. But he goes in there, and it's one thing if you want to go in there yourself and do whatever you think you can do to cleanse the place. It's another to let everybody know you're going to do it and make it a public spectacle. And that's what he did with this. He made it a very public display. The press was in attendance. He held a cross in his left hand and a Bible in his right. And he claimed that he had cast out all the spirits, including Mackenzie. Right before the ritual was done, people witnessed this dark shape that seemed to glide across a window in the Edinburgh church that's there. The church was locked and no one was inside, so they couldn't figure out how this shadow figure had made an appearance in the window behind him. But it was very ominous. And a couple weeks after the exorcism, the activity seemed to ramp up again. So whatever he had done clearly did not work. And two months after the exorcism, Colin Grant had a heart attack while conducting a seance at his shop and he died. So people started asking, was the shadow that they saw in this church the Mackenzie poltergeist? And had it seen, you know, who's messing around out here, figured out who this guy was, and had he killed this Colin Grant? Now, I'm a skeptic. He, maybe he just had a heart attack. It happens. But was it because he was fooling around in here? The epilogue of the ghost that haunted itself. I want to read to you what that has to say here. It says, Kate, Ben, David, and Kara still lead City of the Dead tours into the Covenanter's prison. Derek has even returned to do an occasional tour. His dream job turning out to be not so great in reality. The Mackenzie poltergeist is stronger than ever, and its attacks seem to have increased in scope and severity. It is now regarded as one of the most conclusive and best documented paranormal cases in history. Despite the poltergeist's fame, or more likely because of it, visitors still take the tour, stand in the darkness, and hope that something will happen to them. 
After all, they don't really believe they will encounter a supernatural entity on a ghost tour in the middle of the capital city of one of the most civilized countries on the planet until they do. And this book is just full of these stories of people who have gone on these tours and probably gotten more than what they wanted. Uh, One of the stories I want to share for you is from a woman named Megan. She had been on the tour back in June of 1999. She was from Leeds, and she had just left the Covenanters prison. She says, my name is Megan. I'm 11 years old. So we're talking about a child. And Jerry, I don't know about you, but I have found when it comes to hauntings that children seem to be a little bit more sensitive to these hauntings and spirits and things like oh, that. Yeah. So when you have an 11 year old, I, I agree. I... Yeah. When you hear, when you have an 11 year old saying that she experienced something for me, I'm going to perk up a little bit more because they're not going to tend to make things like that up. She said, when I went into the first place, the Covenanters prison, I wasn't frightened. It was very dark and I couldn't see. I was scared then. And the man, the tour guide got me to stand beside him And then I wasn't scared anymore. My arms were very cold. When we got outside, I went to my mom and took her hand. It was not so dark, but it was still scary. When we got here, which was Candlemaker Row, the street outside the graveyard, my mom said, what had happened to your arm? There was blood on my arm. I had cuts on it, too. My mom said, how did that happen? Is it sore? I didn't know, but it wasn't sore. My arm was very cold. And it still feels cold and funny when she was making that report. And, I mean, it's, it's one thing to feel a little bit scared in the dark and how she felt cold. I'm almost wondering if when she was scratched, rather than feeling the pain that we would normally feel from a scratch, that's the cold that she was feeling. Like she could feel the fingers touching her arm. Just Yeah, I would say that's probably what it was. Yeah, so I was like, it's it's one thing to be like, oh, I was a little scared in there. It's quite another to have the actual marks to show it. And the cuts were bad enough that she was actually bleeding. There was a woman named Savon, and she was actually from Minnesota here in America. And she had gone on the tour there, and she'd gone into the Covenanters prison in August of 1999. And she said she'd had some kind of trouble breathing in here. She'd been to all sorts of festivals and she wanted to try something different, something that was very Scottish. And she said the graveyard looked pretty and not very scary. So why not do a tour there? The tour ended inside a tomb called the Black Mausoleum. The tour guide began to tell us of all the creepy things that had happened in this place since the tours began. I felt a bit let down. I was enjoying myself, but I knew nothing was going to happen and if he was telling the truth, that was the point. That, what was the point of being in this tomb anyway? So she said, then I just stopped breathing. I can't put it any better than that. I must stress that I wasn't scared or tired or feeling unwell. It was more like something had put a hand over my mouth and stopped the air getting in. So basically something she can't see is suffocating her. I can't think of anything more terrifying than that. I took two or three steps back and hit the wall, then pushed forwards again, trying to get the guide's attention or to somehow get out of the tomb. I was absolutely terrified, and I remember perfectly the sick feeling in my chest that comes with being so scared. 
I honestly thought I was going to die. The next thing I remember was when I woke up outside. I was told I'd only been unconscious for a few seconds. The guide gave me his address after the tour and asked if I would write to him and say what had happened. I decided not to because I felt stupid about the whole thing and there was probably a logical explanation for the way I felt. Then I decided I would write something after all because I can't deny that it did happen and I have no rational explanation for it. And one of the ways you know that clearly something happened to this woman is she said the next thing I remember when I woke up outside. So something made her pass out. (laughs) Right. So that to me was pretty convincing that she'd had something happen to her. And I mean, that's one of the main reports you hear is it's either these people are being pushed or scratched or they can't breathe. So I don't know what it is that he's doing that's making people not be able to breathe, if it's just obstructing their airways in this way, if he's, you know, maybe tightening on their throats, pushing on their chests. There was a woman named Rachel, and she did the tour back in September of 2000. She said, I went on a night tour to Greyfriars Graveyard with friends. In the Covenanters' prison, I felt extremely faint and started breathing rapidly. I did not get scared easily, so I don't know why I had this reaction. While we were walking toward the tomb, the black mausoleum, which we were all going to enter, felt as if I were suddenly getting colder. I did not think much of it because it was a chilly night, but as soon as we entered the room, I began to shake uncontrollably. And I don't know about you guys, I do get chilled very easily since I am from Florida. (laughs) But in order for you to like be shivering and like your teeth are chattering, you have to be really cold. At least for me, that's the case. So when people talk about a haunting and they feel a cold spot or a cold breeze or a cold wind, that's one thing. But something that's giving you such a chill that your teeth are chattering and your body is shaking, that's a real physical manifestation that you're having there where your body's trying to compensate for something being so cold. And I know it's September of 2000. We're in Scotland. It's a place that's cloudy and cold at this time of the year, possibly. But to be in a in a, a shaking uncontrollably, that to me is really, really cold. She even ended up having to brace herself against the wall, and she started hyperventilating. I felt like I could not breathe properly. I felt better the moment we were allowed to leave the area. This was a very strange thing to happen to me because I've never fainted in my life and I've never felt that way before or since. The next day I had a welt above my left eye which did not go away for about two weeks. This experience will stay with me forever. So I don't know where this welt came from. If Bloody Mackenzie had you know hit her in the face or something and it didn't specifically say that she had passed out but then she seems to indicate that she did pass out at some point and that that had never happened to her before. There's a guy here. It's not just the women that are having this happen named Kyle. And he was in the cemetery back in July of 2000. And he is actually from Missouri. He said, my incident occurred about one or two minutes after entering I stood listening at the back of the crowd when, without hearing voices or any of the other phenomena reported, I felt something I've never encountered before. Hopefully I never will again. It was akin to having someone wrap a black cloak of ice around me. It was hard to breathe and became very cold 
very quickly. It was not like a breeze, though. The air was quite still and just dropped dramatically. I began to black out. So here we again are having all of these same experiences. I remembered, I remembered the guide's advice that if something strange happened, to move. I tried to step away but continued to feel frozen and unable to draw a breath like a deer in headlights, totally fixed in place. I finally forced myself to jump. Though it only took about four seconds or so for the entire ordeal, it passed slowly, and I recall vividly the sickening feeling in my stomach. Out of the entire group, only the lady standing next to me looked at me. Maybe she thought I was trying to be cute with an attempt to scare everyone by a sudden movement. I only wish that to be true. I'm not sure if the guide noticed or if he just let it go without trying to shake everyone else up. Usually cool-headed, I now had an acute case of the shakes. I wanted to leave but honestly was too frightened to move without the rest of the group. As the tour ended, many people went together to a nearby pub, which was my original intent of my evening. I passed on this, went back to my lodgings, and had a hard time falling asleep without reflecting on the evening. The next morning, I saw the guide walking down the street. I told him my story and also told him that I had said nothing the previous evening because I did not want to stop until I was well away from the activity's location. He gave me the company's phone number, and I subsequently gave them my story. So here you have a guy who was clearly his intent for the evening was probably to go have some fun on a ghost tour and then go get a beer at the local pub. And he did not want to do that when he got done. And, you know, most men are not going to come forward and say, I had this horribly creepy sensation of just being, I don't know. It's to me, when you hear somebody talk about, like I said, this cold thing, they're describing something like a cold blanket just being wrapped around you. What I'm envisioning is this Mackenzie's poltergeist is manifesting in a way that they can't see him, but that he is just putting his whole body around them and covering their mouth. And this makes me wonder when he was in charge of killing the prisoners back in the day, I'd love to know how was he killing most of them? Were they hanged or makes you wonder if a lot of these people weren't suffocated in some way? It's an interesting concept, without a doubt, because there could be some kind of connection. So I don't know, Jerry. I mean, I usually poo-poo a lot of these poltergeist stories, but this one is just so convincing to me. And it's just there's one story after another. They're all very much the same, and a lot of them seem to have been told very reluctantly. It's like the next day they are thinking about it, and they're like, you know what, I need to tell them my story. So it's like they don't want to talk about it the night of. It's almost like they need to either process it or they don't believe that it actually happened. But in the light of day, they're like, no, that really happened, especially when they have these physical manifestations. All right, let me play devil's advocate. So this really isn't a devil's advocate thing right here to start off with, but it's like a little pet peeve of mine. You know, this this uh, entity is named the Mackenzie Poltergeist. Now, I had a conversation with uh, Keith Lender last week about what I consider the definition and the, most of the paranormal world consider the definition of a poltergeist. And it really isn't something like this as much as it is someone creating uh, some type of an entity themselves through their telekinesis or something of that nature, which is what most people in the paranormal uh, community deem to be a poltergeist. Mm -hmm. And 
this seems to be more of a, a malevolent spirit or something of that nature. What is your thoughts on that as far as what the name given to this entity is? I totally agree. I would have called it the Mackenzie something. I wouldn't want to call it the Mackenzie demon because, of course, that opens a whole other can of worms. But something else, because I agree with you. The main reason why I don't even necessarily put poltergeist. I wouldn't put poltergeist in the ghost column. They would be in the paranormal column because there's something that's unexplained. But I agree with you. I've always thought of poltergeist as being something that a living person is manifesting. Usually it's a, a teenage girl going through puberty. And it's just, you know, Jerry, us women, we have a mm -hmm. lot of energy. I'm surprised we don't have more, more poltergeist with menopause. <laughs> because I could throw some energy, I tell you. <laughs> so I agree with you. I don't well, understand and, and why this is called a poltergeist. Here's my other question. So what if, I guess my first, here's my first question for you, because you may not know the answer to this. You know, you were telling the story about how the homeless guy fell through the floor and onto the pile of bones. But that almost sounds like there was a tunnel or something underneath the floor. So if for there to be a mass grave, that would have been filled in with dirt, I would have thought, and there wouldn't have been anything to fall through to. Mm -hmm. So it seems like it would have had to been almost like a tunnel that had a floor over top that they had put the, uh, uh, like the pit was already there, like it was just built over top of a pit. Does that make sense? Yeah, or almost like it was a crypt that was never mapped or something, or it was mapped and they didn't care that there was a right. crypt there and just decided to put the mausoleum on top of it. And that's what I think happened. I think they just put the mausoleum right over top of it. And said, you know, this guy's big and fancy and, you know, you're unimportant and we're just going to build right over top of you. The other thing that I question, too, is how are we pinpointing this to Bloody Mackenzie? Obviously, he was a bad guy during his time and he is in the vicinity where this is happening. But we had a grave of a whole bunch of maybe plague victims disturbed. Them, to me, I would be more disturbed from their point of view, because not only were they probably not given a proper burial, but now they've also been disturbed. It was their bones that were moved around, messed around. This guy was rifling through that kind of thing. That was going to be my next point is it seems more like the, the bones that were disturbed would be more the problem with, uh, with, the haunting than Mackenzie because hey Mackenzie had been there all this time and nothing had happened and once again the same thing with the people underneath they'd been there all this time too but when the floor fell through and their bodies were disturbed is when it happened now apparently he probably disturbed Mackenzie's body too just rifling through trying to find out what he could get but I mean I, I I'm like you I kind of think you I would pinpoint it more probably on the um the people that were under the mausoleum as to the the uh, reason for the haunting rather than Mackenzie. Sure, and then you have the possibility of multiple spirits, which is maybe why somebody would feel like they're being surrounded by, engulfed in this cold, is that if you've got a whole bunch of them around you. Yeah, yeah, you could, like I said, it could be a crew of, uh, of people causing it to be extra cold. Mm -hmm. Well, Diane, it's a pleasure 
as usual. We've got uh, some a live event coming up. We're going to be in Savannah together in October. Seems like forever away, but it'd be here before you know it. Absolutely. And you were instrumental in getting that set up. That was uh, more or less, I think, your idea. So I would call that instrumental. Well, it's a great city, and there's so much to see and do there. So it's a great place to have a live show. I'm excited because you've been there a bunch, and you always shoot all these live videos when you go there. And and that's made me more curious about going. So uh, you were the inspiration, without a doubt, for that, that show getting set up. Well, thank you. That's very cool. And I'm looking forward to returning. So tell everybody how they can find you. I was just going to say I was looking forward to returning to Louisville, too. Oh, yeah. I forgot about that. I forgot about that. I was, for some reason, I forgot all about Louisville. I remembered Savannah. But, uh, yeah, Louisville is going to be fun, too, because so we're going to have uh, uh, a real-life exorcist there. Yes. So that's always going to be fun. Absolutely. I'm looking and forward to, to that, do, too. Uh, you get to bring Kelly to Waverly. Yes, and uh, we're we're going to see about setting up an investigation there because you know we do that kind of thing now. That's awesome. Yep, yep. You're uh, expanding. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it's a good idea, but yes. <laughs> so, Diane, tell everybody how they can uh, find your show, and uh, of course, I'm going to just say right out, guys. If you haven't listened to the show, what you got tonight is a prime example that this is exactly like listening to uh, history goes bump. So except you got, you know, 350 or so more episodes you can go check out uh, on different subjects, but uh, go ahead, Diane, tell everybody how to find you. The podcast is up anywhere. You can listen to podcasts and the one-stop shop for everything about finding out where we are on social media or emailing us is at historygoesbump.com. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on. It's always a pleasure, and we'll have you on again soon. Oh, thank you so much, Jerry. You know, I love you and Tracy, and I absolutely love the show, so it's been my pleasure. Well, that was fun, to say the least. (laughs) (laughs) Diane's always got some good stories to tell. Well, guys, we hope you enjoyed this one, and we got some more exciting stuff on the way. Yeah. Next week, our special guest is going to be Lee Soway from the uh, former Don't Break the Oath podcast. Nice. Now Realm of the Supernatural. Good. Lovely. He tells a poltergeist story that is every bit as exciting as this one, and it's also from over in uh, in uh, Great Britain. Oh. So, yeah, this is one I hadn't heard before, but it was pretty fascinating. It's, oh, good, good. Get this, a haunted lawnmower shop. Are you being serious? I'm being 100% serious. <laughs> <laughs> and And his name is Pete the Poltergeist. Oh, Pita. And so, Pita. You guys will like that one. So, thank you guys for everything you do. And yeah, we'll talk we to really you soon. appreciate you guys. We love you so much. Here's to a brand new year, you guys. Oh, and I guess before I get out of here, we have to mention again on our website the uh, lifetime Patreon membership. We decided to make that the entire month of January since this is January 1st. Uh, it's there. Yep. 50 bucks. Go read all the details, but you get. One time, $50 fee, you get, as long as we ever do the show, everything that comes along with it. There's over 450 shorts. There's over 50 full-length episodes that are already there. You got a 24 uh, short episodes that will be coming new every single month mm-hmm. after this. Uh, two full-length episodes every month after this. We're also doing um, all of our the current stuff that we do, the regular show. It will be on there ad-free. Mm-hmm. So you don't have to worry about any ads if you want to do that. And you get 20% off anything in our store for lifetime. 
I think that's a great deal. It is a great deal. Go do it. Yeah. <laughs> what he <laughs> said. We'll see you guys later. <laughs> Bye.